Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Tommy, how are you, dude? Good, how are you? Yeah, man, I'm doing all right, all things considered. <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know how long we're into it now. It's basically a year, isn't it? Uh, and it, it, we are into it a year, and it's going to continue for the rest of the year. Easily, yeah, yeah. Are you joining me on video as well, or are we just going to do yeah. audio chat? Yes, yeah, sir, I'm just... Uh, just getting it fixed up. Yeah, I always have a piece of tape over my camera. Cheers. Smart man. Good to see you. Good to see you, man. Yeah, I was chatting to Chuck Treese literally just a couple of days ago, and oh, cool. I was I, I was reliving the day when I'd met you two briefly in London. Um, I guess we're going back 18 months now, maybe a bit longer. Uh, you played the Jazz Cafe, great yeah. show, and then you'd done like a last-minute surprise thing at the Macbeth That's is right. the name of the pub. And I was saying to Chuck, that just scenario seems like an alternate universe now <laughs> yeah yeah totally Com- completely we did uh we had a show here really close to my house um march 6th and that was the last show we did as well as many people i know everyone who showed up that was the last show they went to so it's almost a year it's interesting so I imagine you've been traveling most of your life, um, you know, either through skating or music or just, you know, life. So how yeah. have you found basically being grounded? 
for a year. How's it been? I imagine you've readjusted and readapted and, you know, um, perhaps exercised new parts of your brain. But what have you been doing to pass the time and stay sane? Well, staying staying home, um, you know, has its pros and cons, but I love traveling. You know, I, I just, uh, whether it's for music or just, you know, going to explore. Um, I got to split town for about a week. We went out to the desert, me and my girlfriend, which was nice, definitely a recharge. And it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's off the grid, a friend's place that we rent um, full solar. So it's three miles off of a, off of a, you know, any cement road into the dirt back towards the hill. So it was really cool. Yeah. Um, So that was nice. But other than that, yeah, just really been staying put and um, a lot of recording, you know, a lot of recording at home. Well, that's the key to sanity I found for me is staying busy, staying creative and almost, I don't know whether I'm just a little bit naive to the outside world in this way, but I've just been kind of focusing on going into myself, almost like escapism, because the, the reality of, of what's going on is almost too much. Well, music music and skating is that for me. I mean, that was, that's kind of the whole reason I think I gravitate toward it, gravitated towards it, because it's to stop the gears from churning, you know, the constant thinking, the constant internal dialogue that we, some of us or many of us tend to have, um, it just really helps uh, take you out of that moment and, and forces you to not think, which is great. And that's the same thing with skating. You're not necessarily thinking when you're skating. And when I'm playing music, you know, if you're in the moment, it's, you know, you can transcend all that shit. And um, it's really therapeutic. Are you an overactive brain kind of guy then? Have you always been that way? Yeah, kind of always been that way. Just I just think a lot is what it is. Um, <laughs> I just I'm I'm curious about people quite a bit and their actions and why they <laughs> tend to do the things they do, um, and I, I just kind of contemplate um, and try try to get at the root of uh, whatever it may be that I'm thinking about, and you know just kind of peeling away the layers and, mm-hmm. and going back and. You know, you start realizing that, you know, a lot of people have these reactions to things they read as though this is the end all be all. It's like, no, maybe pull it back a few layers and really see why this is the way that it is. Um, And you get to a a much deeper place and hopefully to the root of whatever the situation is. Um, So I just I tend to do that, you know, just like, why why is this? Why is it like that? And I just kind of peel away until I get to a point of like, oh, okay, you know, have some sort of understanding can we backtrack to a time before music and before skateboarding wow sure (laughs) how how far back is that like what are the earliest memories you have before skating and music are in your life of growing up in san francisco just in terms of like were you a happy kid were you engaged were you lost and 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 what, what was really like kind of your reality before these things that went on to define your life came in um me and me and my brother, it was me and my brother and my mom for the most part. Uh, we didn't have a dad. We didn't grow up with our father. Uh, but we um, had extended family, friends, and my aunt and uncle and, and their three kids. So we lived with them very in various places all over San Francisco. Um, and I tended to live in the inner, su- inner sunset district, which is uh, on the western end of San Francisco towards the beach, so, you know, towards, towards the ocean, and also right next to Golden Gate Park. So Golden Gate Park was our playground. 
you know, we would just split during the day and we'd be gone all day, me and my brother and our friends exploring. And this is, you know, when we're six, seven, eight, you know, um, we were really left to our own, our own devices. And that so, was just the way it was back then as well, wasn't it? It, it seems it, like it, it was. was a generational thing that my friend of mine is a stand-up comedian and he says back in the 70s particularly, but also the 80s and the 90s, the summer holidays would start and your parents would just go, right, see you in six weeks, entertain yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, 70s parenting was pretty loose. So, <clears throat> you know, we were, we were uh, left to our own devices for the most part. And, you know, you just had to make your own fun because... We didn't have very much growing up. We were all, you know, had a great childhood. It was amazing. It was um, a happy childhood. It, it was. And we, you know, were had, uh, um, you know, meager means um, growing up. And there are times when we had to live with, you know, two families in a two or three bedroom uh, apartment or house. But which for kids, if there's other kids, it was fun. It wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, it's probably stressful on the parents and trying to make ends meet and so forth. But for, for us, we didn't know any better. It, it was great. And my mom was super supportive. Once skating came along, I was about nine, this was 1975 when we first started skating, me and my brother. And, um, she was always supportive, you know, didn't really have the funds to always get us, uh, skateboards, new stuff or the, you know, the top of the line gear. We always had some off brand shit. And uh, but, you know, she always kept us um, with boards and knew that it was such a positive thing and it would keep us out of trouble because she's a single mom trying to raise two boys in a city. You know, it's difficult. That's interesting as well, because I imagine some people's perception of skateboarding would have been the opposite, that this is actually going to get you in trouble, that this is this kind of bad gang group over here doing, you know, they're up to no good vandalism, drinking, whatever. But that wasn't the way your mum saw the sport. She actually did see it as almost like this is a salvation kind of thing that's going to keep these kids on the straight and narrow. Completely. She had some some sort of insight that we weren't privy to as young kids. She's she's seen it, you know. Um, and you know, when you're young, you're you're not getting getting into that kind of trouble. That that comes later. Yeah. With the drinking and partying and all that bullshit. Um, but she yeah she knew knew uh, to to keep us active and engaged so we wouldn't find trouble because otherwise, you know, two boys running, running around on their own moms at work, we're going to get into trouble unless we have something constructive to do. It's interesting. I'm not a parent myself, but the psychology of parenting to me from my experience as a child and from chatting to so many people is like, if you withdraw something from a child and say, you can't do this, that seems to me to be the only time when rebellion sets in as because it's almost like, well, if you tell me I can't do this, then I'm now going to want to go and do it. Whereas if the parent just, you know, sort of supports the decision and says, OK, I'm going to back this, then there's really nothing to rebel against. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are there are people who, you know, I, we're all kind of like that to some degree, you, have, you know, skaters, musicians, artists, fucking weirdos, you know, fuck authority, question authority. You know, we're always going to be that way. Um, but, you know, I have a son, he's 16, he'll be 17 in April. And, uh, you know, we talked to him about everything. Um, he's a super sweet kid. And, you know, I'm fortunate. He, he didn't get into the shit that I did at his age. And I'm super grateful because I don't know what I would do, to be honest. Um, but you just talk to him, drugs, everything. You say, here, here's the deal with drugs. You know, here's the deal with this. 
if you end up doing drugs, stay away from pills. They'll kill you. The powders, they'll kill you. Especially nowadays, you don't know what you're getting. Um, you have to be very careful. You have to know your sources, et cetera. And here's what they do. And, you know, if you're going to experiment, just, you know, we need to know about it, you know, just stuff like that. Even weed, you know, you're like, until you're in your twenties, your, your brain and your body and your organs, everything is still developing. So when you start, you know, using, using any kind of drugs, even smoking weed, it's going to be debilitating to some degree. It's going to diminish the possibilities uh, for your future. And I, you know, and I know because, you know, I, I smoked weed when I was young and, and so forth. And uh, definitely it takes its toll. So just trying to be open with him about that. So he has the information, not withholding it. Um, and he can choose kind of what to do with it. I had a very heavy year of weed smoking when I was 16 and it buckled me. I now refer to weed as parijuana. And <laughs> I, I had one day, I just had a bong hit and it sent me on this like four hour panic attack. And it was so intense. And it was only, I think, you know, as you just pointed out years later, you realize at that point, there's so much happening in your brain and your body that's, you know, it's still developing and growing. And to be taking, you know, the mind down those sorts of roads then. So when did you start getting into that stuff? Um, wow. Uh, not so my teens, you know, because, right. you know, growing up in San Francisco, I went to public school and, you know, a bunch of friends, you know, every everybody... Well, what was San Francisco like in the late 70s, early 80s when you're becoming a young teenager? Was the hippie heyday still or the hangover from that? Was that still there or, or what was going on? Because you do hear some accounts of it being a pretty rough and rowdy, dangerous place as well in certain parts. Back yeah, then. yeah, completely. It was. I mean, I went to a high school, you know, 2000 plus kids and <clears throat> it was super dangerous. The first, one of the first weeks, you know, first week that I was there, <clears throat> I witnessed a full on gang fight. And, you know, I was just a little kid and I was a punk, total punker, 14 years old, bleach, spiked hair, you know, spike wristbands, my board is 1980. And people just looked at me like I was a weirdo. So I used to get grief from a lot of different people, a lot of different factions um, because I didn't fit in anywhere. So I, so I would get a lot of grief from different people. Um, and like there was so much violence at our school that it was, uh, you know, it just was frightening as a, as a young kid. Um, so a lot of the times I would just split. I wouldn't even want to be around it because I, I was getting harassed for lunch. Give me your money. Give me this. Give me that. You know, and and uh, I was like, fuck you. You know, it was always like, fuck you. Take it. <laughs> never gave it. I never, ever gave it up, you know, willingly. Because um, that's all I, you know, I've had a dollar. That's all the money I had in the fucking world. So you weren't they weren't going to get it. Um, so, yeah, it was rough. San Francisco is super rough. And, you know, Parts of the city were just, you know, you just didn't go to certain parts of the city. You didn't go to Hunters Point District when you were young. You didn't go to certain parts of the mission because of the gangs, you know. Um, and uh, you just had to, you just had to watch yourself. You had to be street savvy, just like growing up in any big, a big city. What about the punk scene? Um, I mean, for me, skateboarding and punk was basically hand in hand and two halves of the same wonderful coin, especially at that time. Um, and you were in, a, was it Free Beer was the name of your early high school band, right? Yeah, that was the main band. But we had bands before that. We had bands going from, I think, late 78, 79. Um, we had our first band was Jerry's Kids. It was a different Jerry's Kids because I know there was one that came, I think, from Boston that was bigger. And then we turned into Revenge with um, another friend. Do you know who Shrugi is, Steve Ruby? No. He's skater. Um, he he's he's around the whole skate team works he, he started ace trucks with joey Turchet. 
He used to work at first Spitfire. He used to be the TM at Spitfire Thunder. Right, um, right, right. Old friend. I grew up with him, skating with him, you know. And so he was a singer, and it was me and my brother and another friend. You know Bryce Knights, right? BK. He was in our first band, Jerry's Kids, as a bass player. Um, and so, and then after Revenge was Free Beer. And Free Beer was the most well-known, and we played shows with every band that came through San Francisco, you know, every every kind of punk band. Um, Put uh, me in the picture of a couple of them. Yeah. So 1984 was our last gig, and that was um, Angry Samoans and Suicidal. Was that violent as you like? Oh, man, that show was fucking nuts. (laughs) Because Suicidal, you know, those cats were crazy. So that that show got violent. And that was when, you know, things really started to turn, like hardcore and everything started to come into picture. And I was already getting out of the scene at that point. I was way more starting and getting into hip-hop and stuff. Um, But... Yeah, that original wave of like the germs and stuff and X had kind of been replaced by the more, as you say, gang related, violent. Yeah, just just more like, yeah, like the, yeah, the hardcore stuff, NBC and, and all those bands, RKL. And, you know, I knew a bunch of those guys and they're all cool. It's just that, that the audience, you know, grew violent. Like we went from like kind of, you know, uh, slam dancing, you know, they called mm-hmm. it moshing afterwards. But it was it, everyone would pick each other up and help each other up. And then later it became more like a fight pit, you know, which was, which I thought was completely lame. Um, Did you witness stabbings and shootings and things like that at the shows? uh, Unfortunately, early on, I, but it wasn't the punks. It was on, on Broadway, you know, the the Mabuhe Gardens. There was, it was on Broadway street and there was a lot of um, nightlife happening on that street. Like you had a lot of the uh, um, military who would uh, from the Navy who would come and dock, or go, you know, and go looking for nightlife where there was a lot of strip clubs and they were up on Broadway right next to the punk clubs. So you get, right. you get a lot of those types and they would always start shit with the punks. And then we had, we had a, a contingency of just uh, roughnecks who would cruise around and they start shit with punks. And one time there was an exchange of words. These, these three girls called the punkettes. These guys got out of cars and they stabbed these women and, and one of them almost died. And it was a whole, whole fucking gruesome scene and i was still i was you know a little kid i mean i was 14 years old or something different, and, uh, very different times man i mean it's fun it's funny there. isn't it because if you had as you mentioned blue hair or a skateboard back then that was the equivalent of taking your life into your own hands on the streets wasn't it it's not right. like the sort of warped tour hot topic safe space no no this is pre-mtv and everything where you did not see it so when people had the you know had the opportunity to being in you know kind of the punk scene or be around it they were shocked you know they, they didn't know what it was they didn't know what it was about um and so as always you just they fear it so then they hate it or they, or they turn to violence because of because of their fear right you know um what so, was it about punk rock that attracted you was it that you just found the energy appealing or it, it was, was every, more everything about it you know the the energy the aesthetic, uh, the DIY attitude, the fuck you attitude, because, you know, growing up skating, we would skate the skate parks that, um, in the late seventies, um, they're a couple hours away. And, um, you know, when, when punk started coming to the fore, it was all, first it was rock and roll, ACDC, stuff like that. And then punk started coming around once it really made its way from, from the UK here with, you know, we, we all we listened to was English punk, really, for the most part, was Angelic Upstarts and Cockney Rejects, of course, the Pistols and X-Ray Specs and Rosillos and 
um, UK subs and, you know, all these great bands that, that made it way here. Finally, um, we got, we got hip to, and, uh, then they started playing all that stuff in the skate parks, which made sense because the energy, because it was raw music and skating was raw. So it, like you said, it really went hand in glove. And then when you realize like, Oh, you know, you want to start a band, you could just, you just did it. You just picked up instrument and do it. It wasn't like, Oh, I have to take lessons or I have to buy some specific kind of instrument, et cetera. It was like, no, pick up whatever you have and just go for it. You know, it was that, it was that attitude and those, that ethos. Um, and, and it was also, um, it was fun. It was, um, expressive. Uh, you could get shit off your chest. It was also, you know, very political. I mean, that's how it all really started, it, you know? Um, and so you're pissed about something like the Reagan years when, you know, here in the States, you know, that, that was a lot of good fodder for music. You know, dead Kennedy's made a living out of making fun of Reagan. <laughs> I've always likened the kind of the duality of the two as well, because I've never really been a skater, but I've always been fascinated with skate culture because for me, everybody who falls into that world in much the same way, if you fall into the punk world, you, you might not be able to play guitar per se in the same way you might not be able to perform tricks on a board, but you can then maybe start a clothing company or become a photographer or put a team together. And it's this same DIY creative drive, I think, that basically we're all just trying to dodge like the nine to five yeah. job. That's yeah. it. Is how, how can we live forever without ever working yes. you know, a shitty job? That's yeah. the driving force, you know, behind both scenes. Yeah, definitely a large part of it is that for sure. Because I also think that, that, you know, punk rock and skating and these type of, you know, um, I don't know, underground activities as they were at the time or um, sort of nurture, you know, an, an entire ideology and philosophy wrapped around. I'm not going to be a cog in the wheel because I know the machine is broken. I don't yeah. want any, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, and you know, you're quick to tell people to fuck off when they're full of shit. Um, and that doesn't float well <laughs> when you're, you know, at, in a nine to five situation where you have a boss and you have higher, the hierarchy within, within the uh, company and someone's always going to shit on you for something. And, you know, I, I personally, and I know a lot of people just don't tolerate that shit. Isn't it amazing that it's, like a lifelong thing as well i found with a lot of other genres if you get into hip-hop per se well maybe hip-hop's the same actually but certainly with things like metal it is a phase you yeah. know whereas i think with skating with punk perhaps with hip-hop to a large extent at least from that time is you never grow out of it it's a way of looking as you say at the world that transcends just your interest in this pursuit it's actually like an ideology and an attitude that you take with you everywhere you go to every situation Oh, what an exciting time to grow up bang in the middle of the, you know, the, gra the grassroots of all of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's timing. Super fortunate to be in that moment. I mean, because it was, it, everything was happening. There was so much going on, the beginning of so much. Um, and just being at the forefront of it was incredible and to be informed by it. You know, I was super lucky. How come you think skating, like, as the, the 70s trail off and the parks start closing, why do you think skateboarding began to almost collapse and go back to that you know ground street level what do you think it was that in the in the industry that was fledging at that time um well all the if so many people were interested in it the skate all the skate parks closed because of liability really um right. because people were you know getting hurt as you do and they were in and the parents rent would end up suing the skate park owners even though even though you know they had 
you know, filled out some form stating they wouldn't, et cetera, right? Um, an agreement. And um, once that started happening, all the parks started closing. And then also the skate parks themselves, they didn't know how to build them back then. So a lot of them were really fucked up, like really hard to skate. So um, you had a combination of, of different things like, like that. So the kind of perfect storm sort of happened. Um, so the skating started to die out. The park started to close because of liability and because of uh, poor craftsmanship, et cetera. And then so did the, the industry itself, because you also had an industry from the seventies, a large part of it, that was that all of the companies that, and the owners and so forth, the idea behind it, why they started the company was just monetary gain. It wasn't because they were skateboarders. It wasn't because of their love of skateboarding. They had seen it like a fad, like a hula hoop, et cetera. So they jumped on, on board trying to, you know, ride the wave and and once they seen it end they all pulled out and so there were still a lot of hardcore skaters left and you're like well what do you do and that's how the backyard backyard ramp started popping up all over the place and not so much here where i lived because in san francisco you know it's a tiny city so not many people really had backyards and yeah. if you did you most people were not going to let you build a ramp in it because your neighbor's literally right next door to you so you know, we, we grew up skating the streets. I grew up on a hill in San Francisco when my first time, you know, skating was going down a hill. And so we just kind of um, started skating, went back to the streets again. We would, we would always street skate and skate whatever there was. Um, but for the most part, we just kept skating because we loved it. And because we had San Francisco, which is almost like a skate park within itself in the sense of it's, you know, you know, geographically speaking, um, you know, all the hills and so forth. It was like, we had a run that we would take a bus up about a mile and a half and skate all the way down. And it was called the ninth Avenue run. And that's kind of like a skateboarder's ski slope, you know? Um, and that was, that's where we learned how to uh, skate fast and, um, and, you know, dodge cars and buses and so forth. And, you know, you start to know what to look for in, in, in traffic and it hones a really specific, type of um um acuity and you kind of tune in to subtleties like like somebody who rides a motorcycle i would think in cities is very similar because i have friends who ride bikes you know and and they can they can see when the person is going to turn left in front of you but their blinker's not on because of their body language and so forth and there's the same thing with skating you could see like oh that guy's going to go left but he doesn't have his blinker so i'm going to you know make an adjustment and go around this way and that just saved your life i mean literally all the time so you you have a really keen sense and, a, and an awareness of observation and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, I've great. seen that. I've seen that in friends of mine. You'll be in a car with them or just walking around. And these might even be guys that haven't skated in, you know, 10, 15 years. And they'll be look and they'll be like, oh, that would make a really good little, you know, spot. And it's yeah. it's wild how that kind of thinking never leaves you. It's like I was saying the same thing. You're a lifer. Once you're in it, it's like, yeah, that's you. It, it, no, you're you're a lifer because you can still, you can still, you know, um, sniff out skate spots, even though you couldn't skate them yourself because you're too fucking old, but you can see them and you can sniff them out. And, and the way you perceive things is forever changed. So it, it definitely, definitely changes your perception of everyday life of everything in life, you know, because everything becomes a possibility, you know, it's not a door, it's not a wall, it's a mm -hmm. possibility. Um, so which yeah is, which is philosophy yeah. isn't it that's philosophy right there. yeah I, I mean it definitely nurtures a sense of um of that for for sure um 
yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of heavy, there's a lot of skaters who are quite philosophical, actually, if you think about it. I was re-watching the Bones Brigade documentary earlier today, and I mean, Rodney Mullen is such a fascinating figure to me, yeah. such a unique, like, one-of-a-kind human being. Um, I mean, all of that team, it seemed like, you know, I interview so many bands and bands are a, a very similar breed. I think of often they're individuals that wouldn't necessarily have fallen together were it not the group that, you know, bonded and unified them. Was that the sense with the Bones Brigade that basically it was the skating, which was what unified you, but in fact, you were all such unique, individual, different forces on that one team? Yeah. I mean, we were definitely... Um brought together by Stacy Peralta, you know, it's a, it's a man, it's like a boy band, you know, yeah. like it's a yeah, very, yeah. very manufactured thing. Like he picked, you know, kind of the best guys that he thought from sort of each, um, each, uh, what is it? Discipline as it were. And, and he put together this crew of guys that would go around the world and, you know, do their thing. And he sort of had, he had an eye for talent. He had an eye for something unique or special. And we all got along I think because we were in this really unique situation. Um, I had known Stevie Caballero from way back from, because he grew up about an hour south of San Francisco. So I would see him at skate parks down there before he rode for Powell, you know, way, like so a really long time ago. Um, so I had known Stevie for a really long time. But, um, you know, you get, you sort of get these disparate um, personalities and you, and you, <laughs> put them together and it's interesting to see what's going to happen. But, but the main thing really was, is we were professional skaters and we were, um, you know, we were young and we loved to skate, but we also, it was our job as well. Um, so I never, we didn't really have a lot of, uh, you know, infighting or anything. It wasn't like, you know, how like a band dynamics, you know, you can definitely get guys can get fired up. And there's always like, there's always two guys in the band that just fucking bicker. <laughs> and you're just Fighting like, for the main spot, isn't it? Or, or something. There's always that. There's always those two guys. I was in a band like that before and I just backpedaled <laughs> right out of the scene, you know? Um, but yeah, we, we were pretty good about it. We got along pretty well, even though, you know, you're spending months on the road um, together. Um but, so I wanted to ask you that, but you, you did, you genuinely like for the large part, didn't butt heads and, and did get along without yeah. drama. Yeah. Even in, as you say, those situations where you're not sleeping very well, you're sleeping, if you are sleeping at all in vans or shitty hotel rooms, sharing beds, floors, you're driving hours and miles to then yeah. go compete. You're probably maybe going for a few drinks or whatever afterwards. So they're high pressure environments that can brew stress drama fighting but for the large part you got on pretty well yeah we did definitely i mean there was you know things here and there but nothing nothing that really stands out like there's no actual like altercations you know physical altercations of any kind um and a lot most of the time just laughs just everybody kind of you know fucking with each other just uh whether pranks or joking or or whatever it is you know because you get bored and you're in the van and so there's always going to be shenanigans someone is always going to do something you know, and it would was, that, it, would that usually be Lance? <laughs> Lance, Lance was known for shenanigans. He was always, but he kept it fun. You know, Lance yeah. was always really fun to be around. Who was your best friend within that group? Would you say that you bonded with and connected with the most? 
I mean, it's kind of hard to say. I've known Stevie for so long, but we also, there was a similar sort of uh, um, personality we have where we but we were butting heads because we would argue about certain things and neither of us would um, relinquish our position. So there would be some, sometimes there would be that like, no, it's this, no, it's that fuck you kind of thing, you know, or with Stevie. But um, I spent a lot of time with Tony because we did some movies together. And so when we did Gleaming the Cube together, I ended up living with him at his, um, I think it was his sister's house, like a, like an apartment um, in the Valley, maybe Simi Valley or something, LA somewhere, just somewhere out in the Valley, hot as shit. And it was me and him were assigned to teach Christian Slater how to skateboard. So we would go meet Christian at the schoolyard and, you know, we just skate around and Christian would usually just say, oh, you guys can go split and, and I'll just, you know, practice. And so me and Tony would just go street skate, cruise around. And then we were getting paid too, you know, like 500 bucks a day. So it was pretty funny. So I spent a lot of Isn't that wild that that's where skating ended up taking you? Which is bizarre. Yeah, that's, that's complete. That's a whole nother, you know, that's a whole nother uh, (laughs) chapter of, of this life. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say, you know, I mean, Lance have a real, really cool rapport and and a friendship. I, because I really, you know, I really dig him and what he's about. And uh, I mean, all those guys, they're, they're all within their own right. They're all unique and special, special guys, you know, um, What's cool about that documentary is it seems like not just in terms of your individual skill sets and what you brought to the table as one part of that team um, as a skater, it seems like everybody was a unique individual and personality as well. And, And there was like just special qualities which made everybody stand out. And almost everybody, although, you know, Rodney was excellent in his lane and you know i love the parts where lance is like well, what am i going to do you know these guys are inventing tricks and but then he finds his niche with the performance side of being on camera and it seems like there was no weakest link in the chain which is what was really cool about that whole documentary story and learning that yeah every everybody you know had their approach they had their own approach they had their own thing everybody had their personalities um you know mcgill was the mctwist guy he invented the mctwist which was mind-blowing tony hawk was the technical you know, child prodigy. Roddy Mullen was this uber genius um, introvert who was inventing tricks every hour. Um, and and Lance, Lance was the the um, hardest working skater in the biz. You know, he would skate so hard and he would slam until he made something. He was so tenacious, and while doing it, he was funny as hell. And you know, so. It just, it, and you know, I, I just, I have a specific um, love for each guy and what they brought to the table, for sure. Were you the first professional street skater? Me and Is Mark. That, would that be safe to say? Well, well, me and Mark Gonzalez turned pro on the same day, 1985, May 5th in Sacramento, California at a contest. So in that regard, we're the first professional st- specifically pro street skaters. Now there was already pros obviously before us and everything. And they entered the pro the street contest too, but we were specifically pro for street skating. That, that was the, um, I guess that's what we we're supposed to, that was our job type. It's, and obviously when you get to make the videos, they must, that must've been what ultimately 
led to you being on the sets of movies and things like that because when you're competing in real life there's only really skate fans that are in the area there watching once the vhs video market comes in i guess that's when the stuff that you guys are doing is being seen by like thousands if not millions of people yeah and which which pre-internet would have been a huge huge deal yeah i mean again the coming together of so many moments in time right place right time is just incredible like you said with the the advent of the vhs tape coming into play and being uh you know a new format and something viable you know as alternative to film and so forth um it was huge. And Stacy was already into directing. And so he knew that world a bit. He had been in some movies. He had done some things here and there, but he was getting more known. And so he already had his foot in the door. And so, you know, they knew he was the go-to guy. If they needed skateboarding in their film, it was like, well, you go to Stacy, he's, he's the guy. And so he had his crew of dudes. He, he would say, well, I have, you know, these five or 10 guys that are all phenomenal, phenomenal at what they do. So why don't you bring them on board? Did you enjoy filming parts? Was that a side of it that you enjoyed or were you more about doing it for real, you know, in the competitions and just practicing and the yeah. real life skating? Because there's an element of staged performance with the video work, isn't there? Particularly when you start bringing in the acting stuff. And Well, when there's when there, the, during the actual like films, that was a whole different deal. Like filming for Animal Chain and, and the, all the um, Powell videos, that was a different deal. That's just you go out for a day. And they, and they film and what you get is what you get. It's not like now where you film for a year or even longer for years to get a three minute part. Back then it was, we go out one day, you get a couple of things, you got the next day, you get a couple of things and, and then that's it. That's and whatever they got for two days, that's your part. So, you know, it was very different back then filming. Um, Animal Chin, when that started, when, when he came up with a script and there was dialogue, that was when everyone's like, no, no, no. We're not fucking actors. We're not getting into this, you know, making ourselves look foolish, um, you know, because we're all just too cool. We're all pro skaters. We're like, hey, man, we got these images. We're, we're fucking cool dudes. You know, I didn't put, sign up for this. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> put yourself out there on a limb to look like a, you know, look like a, a kook. Um, that was hard. Like it was difficult to to for Stacy to get us to recite the lines. You know, he definitely had a hard time with that because we were definitely butting heads, all of us with him. Um, um, you know, but in hindsight, I wish we all, I think Lance was the only one. Lance is always agreeable. He always, he always seemed to know, like, this is going to, you know, this might be, you know, in 20 years from now, who knows, this might be the greatest thing. And so I'm going to give it all my, you know, give it up my all now. Whereas I think we were all in very much in the moment going, oh, this is so fucking lame. (laughs) I don't want to do this. So, um, most of us, uh, didn't really want to do the acting stuff, but we agreed to do it and we did our best, you know, and, 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 uh, Stacey was like, Oh, that's good enough. You're like, Oh, that was horrible. Um, so when yeah. was the last time you saw animal chin all the way through? Uh, pro- oh, probably, I don't know. Maybe when we were doing the, the kind of documentary, maybe when we were doing the dialogue and stuff for it, um, maybe back then, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, it's been a minute. Uh, yes, it has. I don't like to watch myself, especially I don't like to watch myself talk. I don't, you know, it just, uh, it's it, it quite bothersome. <laughs> How was the experience of making the, the Bones Brigade documentary? Because there's moments in that, particularly towards the end, where there's a lot of tears from a lot of individuals. Uh, and it seemed like quite a, a poignant, profound, at times heavy 
emotional experience for certain members. How how was it for you shooting that? Um, it was it was fine. I didn't get you know I wasn't overly emotional about it all. Um, it was more kind of matter of fact and also my um sort of my story, you know, and and how I perceived it to be. Um, but for me, it wasn't wasn't that big a thing. I think. I just swore a lot because I find it to be emphatic. So I was like, fuck this, fuck that. And I was like, oh man, I'm sorry for all the kids out there. Um, but Were you and Stacy in a, a healthy place as friends when yeah. it came to making that? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Because when you'd left, was there a little bit of awkwardness for a while, as there always is when sort of one thing comes to an end? But did that sort itself out and rectify? Yeah, well, when I left, when I told him... Um, he was fine. He was okay with it. Cause I think he knew, you know, uh, what was going on. Um, but when I'd seen him at a contest after I'd left Powell and I was, it was in first contest when I was there for real skateboards. Um, he definitely, definitely gave me the cold shoulder and, and it really hurt me because I really looked up to Stacy and he was, you know, um, at times he was like a father and at times he was like, you know, I'm a big brother and he was, a, you know, coach and, um, you know, I had so much um, admiration for him and respect that it, it, it hurt. Um, but, but after that, you know, we, we water under the bridge and, but he knew because everybody jumped ship. Like I was the first one to leave pal because I seen it coming. They, they had, you know, I had seen that they were putting me on the back burner for these new guys. Um, and I didn't feel it was my time. So I had, a, I had an opportunity and I split. 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Let's go back to Christian Slater real quick. <laughs> okay. did, you get, did you get much like time to hang out with him? Did you get to know him on any level or not really? Because I, I, I adore, especially his early 90s work. He was like Jack Nicholson of the 90s to me. Right, that's what everybody... He had that similar that. kind of energy. Yeah. Um, no, we didn't, we didn't, get to, we didn't hang out that, that much. He definitely would leave quickly or wouldn't be on set if he didn't have to be. You know, I think, I don't know. I think everyone knew that Gleaming the Cube was a stupid movie. You know? Including him. Yes. I think <laughs> we all kind of knew that. And he probably knew that him on screen trying to look like he can skateboard was probably a farce. Um, but, uh, you know, years later when I see, I've seen him about five years ago, maybe a little less, maybe actually like three or four. Tony Hawk has, has a radio show and I happen to be in L.A., and, and he happened to be around the same uh, downtown neighborhood I was. He said, hey, do you want to be on the radio show? Christian Slater's going to be on. And so I said, okay. So we, um, you know, I, I went with him and um, we did the talk show. And Christian Slater was in that show, Mr. Robot. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah, it's a great show. I didn't see it until way after that. And I, I, I thought it was really good as well. I was really into it. Um, but I the guy know- who went on to play Freddie Mercury is in it as well, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was great. Um, but so I didn't know what they were talking about when they were discussing Mr. Robot. And I'm like, what is this fucking Mr. Robot? But he was super cool. He was he was not at all bitter about the movie. Not one bit. He was um, actually quite excited um, to talk about it and that we were all talking about it and discussing it. And I was like, oh, that's it's really cool because it could be he could be easily dismissive of it because it's a stupid movie. You know, obviously got slammed in you know, by the critics. Um but he he had a good attitude about it, so that was cool. What what about the, you touch on it in the documentary? But I'm sure there's more of the story than what's in the movie. Is the George Harrison <laughs> like Castle Day Out? Yeah, yeah. Was that, that was, the whole team of you? Was that all of you that wound up there? No, there. It was two different visits, like two different crews and two different visits. Um, right. I was there. I can't even remember who I was there with. Now um, I think it was was maybe Adrian with me at that, with us at that time. And Lance, uh, I don't know, Mark Sato, I think it was and Lance and maybe McGill. Um, yeah, I think McGill and you know, his Danny came up to the, we were skating, um, the, that ramp, um, was under like under an overpass, big metal ramp. What was that ramp? Uh, shit. I can't, you would if you heard the name, you would probably have heard it, be, heard of it because, all the old skaters know what it was. Anyway, we were skating at that ramp and uh, Danny, you know, uh, invited us over to his house 
Um, and we, I didn't know who he was. And then somebody informed us, Hey, that's George Harrison's son. You might want to take him up on the invitation. So they sent, for, they sent a car and we, we went over to his place and, uh, he was super cool. George Harrison was super cool. And he was, you could tell something was off. And then he, he told us that just, I think it was a day after Roy Orbison died. And oh, he, wow. was, he was part of the traveling Wilburys, you know, of their course. Yeah, yeah. And so he was, you know, he was a bit um, despondent about it. Um, but still cool enough somehow to let all these total totally. <laughs> toe rags just rock up to his house. Completely. He gave us the chore, you know, and stuff. And it's funny because, you know, had all the gold records on the walls. He's like, ah, I'm taking all this stuff down. You know, he just he was not interested in all that, all of that, all the accolades and, and so forth. Um, so then, you know, you could take a little boat ride under his property. And, and it was really it was pretty neat. But. So everybody was off somewhere and I sat with George on the lawn and we drank beer and, and just kind of sat there and talked. And for me, it was, it wasn't as impactful as most people because I was not a Beatles fan. You know, I didn't grow up with them. I didn't listen to them. Um, and in fact, growing up as a punk rocker, you know, phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, growing up, listen, you know, and so we were just like, ah, fucking the Beatles, you know? Um, so I wish, I kind of wish I had, you know, a bit more, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Like awareness I, and appreciation of it in the moment, maybe. It, it, yeah, definitely a bit more of an appreciation for the gravity of it, you know? Um and sometimes I feel though, if you're not as phased by the person in the moment, you can be more yourself. And then actually the the encounter and the exchange is more real. Yes. Because you're not freaking out. Completely. Completely. That that's totally true. And I've been in that situation, you know, more than once where I, I'm see, I'm not a fan. I'm not a I don't fan on anyone. Um and You n- never never had it. No, I just it just it's it's not they're just people, but they're, but they're people that, you know, you look up to, you respect and you dig what they do, you respect what they do. But I just never felt it. I, you know, cause there's t- tends to be a sense of inferiority when people, you know, um, think that this person is somehow better than them in some way or whatever. And I just never felt that way. I never feel that way. You know, I mean, I, I would, if I met Stevie wonder, then, okay, perhaps I would probably, you know, uh, not i would probably not know what to say or how to react i would probably i might lose my shit a little bit but other than that it's true man we're all just human beings and i feel like everybody just wants to be especially i mean you know obviously you know we can sit here and say you want to just connect with someone but i think for someone like a paul mccartney or a stevie wonder or the thing that they want probably more than anything is just for somebody to approach them like a real human being and have a normal conversation because they probably get ah hero worship every fucking day of their life. And it must be exhausting. Completely. And McCartney seems like a really cool dude. He seems like a good guy. Like everything I read about him and, and, and see, he's just like, ah, okay. He's fucking cool. He seems grounded. He's funny. He's, you know, he seems like a good one. Yeah. He's all but like unfazed by his own stardom. Which yeah. Is great. Yeah. Which is great. And that's the other thing is like, you know, meeting your heroes sometimes does not play out well because there's a lot of those people who are really full of themselves. When did you first meet Chuck Trace? How do you guys know each other? Wow. So speaking um, of heroes, I love him. (laughs) Early eighties, early eighties. We met 
and maybe we met at Del Mar for the first time, you know, down in, in San Diego um, in the early eighties. And we stayed connected that, that whole time. And since we both were musicians, whenever he'd come through San Francisco, we'd play together. Or whenever I was in Philly, we'd play together. Like I remember a trip on um, Bones Gate trip, we're doing a demo in Philly. And afterwards he rented a, a space and me and him and his brother jammed. And, um, and we'd always try to connect. He would send me uh, hip hop tapes from um, cool, cool DJ Red Alert. I have a couple tapes that Chuck had sent me back in the early eighties of his, of his shows. And so I was getting all the East coast hip hop, like, before any of it was even on the shelves out here um, like tape tape trading days isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah really cool so um you know we've been connected for a really long time has he played on many of your records he has yeah yeah yep he's played on several um um maybe the last i think in 20 last 20 years it's i think about 20 years yeah Play, I'm playing on the records. <clears throat> like he's play, he played on some of the Mo, Moac stuff. How, I had Lavelle on this show a while back. How does he become aware of what you're doing musically? How does that Moax connection? <clears throat> well, come about? I made it. I made a skate video. I had a clothing company in, um, you know, at Deluxe is the mother company where you know where we work and have have uh, real skateboards and everything. Um, I had a clothing company called Forties, and I had made a video. And I did all the music for it, you know, all the, the soundtrack. And um, we were, we had a distributor over, you know, overseas and Andy, and he, you know, he worked for New Deal and he knew James and those guys. And I think he knew Tobin. And so he, I believe, hit them to it, to the music side of it. Um, and they were interested, then they heard it and they were like interested in doing something. Um, and so I spoke with James, I spoke with Tobin, um, and they were going to release my very first record, Loose Grooves. Something happened, timing, I don't know what it was. So then I released it with Thomas Campbell on his little label, Galaxia. And then I, and then I heard James heard it when he was in Japan and was like, why didn't we do the record with him? Like, what's up? So then they said, Hey, we, we want to do the record, you know, want to do records with you. And I said, okay. And it just kind of took off from there. And they, you know, gave me a uh, free reign. They just said, do, do what you do. And uh, I dealt with uh, Toby Feltwell, who was a super cool guy. Everybody there was, was great. And um, yeah, I was a big fan of the Moax uh, um, output, you know, just aesthetically, visually, uh, musically, even, stylistically. He had a- Even he culturally, a, right? Yeah. At that point in time, that label was part of a movement that was defining the times. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, I mean, he was at, at the very forefront of all that stuff. And he helped kind of uh, curate a very specific thing. Um, and I loved it. You know, I, I loved all of the uh, packaging and all the art and everything. All the He was so aware of that the visual had to be just as impactful as the music. And um, yeah, I was totally drawn to that. And it was the Soul Food record that they put out, right? Yeah, the first one was a little bit of something, and it was Margaret Kilgallen did the artwork, and then and then um, Soul Food Taqueria was uh, next after that, and that's where uh, Stephen Powers Espo did the artwork, and then we also did a an EP where Mark Gonzalez did the artwork. Nice. Yeah. And at that point, at that point in time, do you find that 
I mean, what's your fan base then and perhaps now? Is it just a real mix of like people who know you only from the skating that have gotten into the music through that? And then is there people that, you know, perhaps through Mowax or just the sound discovered it and know nothing of your skating background? Like what's yeah. the, the Tommy musical fan base demographic? Well, <clears throat> now, it, now it's all over the place. It really is. I, I think the, the bulk of it is um, creative people. Creative people. Yeah skaters surfers uh and artists and and musicians and just and creative types and that's the bulk of it but from there it definitely echoes out and reaches all people all walks of life all ages which is incredible you know from little from young kids to grandparents i've had um you know who were um, responded to it so it's pretty wild um you know the way it's kind of played out because now you have lots of people who never knew about my skating who were not skaters who have no no point of reference of my history other than just what they heard you know i get emails all the time like oh, i just discovered your music and they realize my catalog is so deep they're like holy shit you know they they i've had a, a couple of different people are like wow man you've been putting out you know quality stuff for the last 20 plus years 25 years and it's just kind of amazing to me to think that people are still just getting hit to it. And if they go backwards, there's, <clears throat> you know, tons of stuff to check out. Um, but yeah. There's like 11 studio albums you've done, right? Is there 11? Yeah. Yeah. And I've had, you know, and then I have collaborations with other people and, you know, and other bands and stuff. Um, probably 10 more albums out there in that vein. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just been, it's wild, especially with, you know, with today it's, it's difficult because you have, you know, everything's streaming. And so you have all these algorithms happening. And so people, it's being su suggested to people who listen to say, you know, something else and kind of maybe similar and they're getting hip to my music that way. And so it's kind of, it's interesting. Like YouTube, somebody hit me up like, oh yeah, I found it on YouTube because of some other thing and it's totally random. And they have no idea who I am, what I'm about or anything. And, and here's kind of, huh. I mean, you know, in, in that sense, you're like, oh, that's cool. But then the whole streaming thing, obviously is like, well, you know, no one's getting paid anything um and so that's that was what i was going to ask was how do you a record music is that just done at home do you have your own space and then how do you how do you distribute and sell your albums apart from when you're on tour at shows it's difficult um i i do have a I have a little studio that i built about six years ago in san francisco but i haven't been using this last year because of covid and everything and um so i have a home studio and that's where my latest record was recorded just type just at home and, um, you know, I have my own little, I started my own little label because like everything DIY, because I went, when, when Moax was sold to uh, beggars banquet, I believe <clears throat> they, yeah. they sort of put them on the back burner and then let them die out. And, you know, as they always do, that's what happens with every credible indie, doesn't it? Is they get completely. And it was such, it was so oh, it eaten was such, up and forgotten. Yeah. It was so so short-sighted of them to do that. I just can't believe it, you know? And so then I, after that, I went to another label that then also had the same issues where the partners dissolved and there was, you know, the whole breakup after one record. And it was one of the, the label was quantum, which was lyrics born and, and shadow had started the label and those guys and, um, and, you know, blacklicious and, and uh, those dudes. And, I was like, oh, these guys are amazing and they're local and did a record with them. And they, right when that happened, they had a whole distribution deal fall through. So my record just kind of sat and then the company dissolved. The guys that I liked there left. 
And it was a whole fucking thing. I was like, oh my God. So then I had no choice. It's like back to skating, back to punk rock, back to everything. DIY. You can't wait around for someone to do it for you. It just doesn't work. So I started my own little label and it's just been trickling out there. I don't have proper distribution in the States, which is, di- which is difficult because everybody keeps asking, where can I get it? And so I'm reaching out directly on Instagram to, to record shops all over the country. Hey, would you be interested in carrying this record? And, fans, and that's, that's still how you're doing it, is it? Just yeah, yourself. And word of mouth. And fans are you know suggesting shops. And so I'll reach out to the shops that they suggested. And, um, and it's working, you know, in that way, like people are being responsive. And so it's just really word of word of mouth has been huge. Um, people have been super supportive that way. Really spreading the word has been amazing. Um, I have a, I have a good distributor in Germany that's been real helpful overseas. And, um, yeah, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are, um, you know, they're, they're fans, but, but they're also kind of champions of, of me, you know? And so yeah. they, they're all kind of looking out for me and trying to figure out how they can help. And it's been really, really pretty beautiful. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard, <laughs> you know, cause I'm just, I'm trying to just get it out there. I mean, today I just found out like, you know, there's some on Amazon cause Amazon is a vehicle since we don't have a distribution a distributor in in the state. So that's one vehicle. You're like, well, if we need to, you can get it on Amazon. But I tell everyone, please go to your mom and pop record shops, brick and mortars. If they don't have it, ask them if they'll carry it. If so, I'll give them the information on how to get the records. Um, But I just seen on Amazon now, when it first came out, it's like 20 bucks or whatever, which, you know, vinyl is, it was 50 bucks. And it pisses me off because what happens is, you know, my lawyer told me that there's certain algorithms that if it's, if it's in, if it's a, some, a product in demand, they will try to jack up the price to right. And it's because it's in demand, it's a hot item or something. So they're going to try to make more money. And the fucking deal is, is that 50 of that 50 bucks, I still don't get anything more. Of course, I, I still get whatever the few dollars that they give because they pay horrible rates. They're, they're fucking horrible, really. Um, but, you know, so now I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, my lawyer is going to figure out how to get them to bring the price back down. Cause it, it just makes me feel, it just makes, it's a shitty feeling and it makes me look bad too. So I'm trying to hustle some records for $50 when that's not the case at all. Um, so it's just, it's difficult. It's turned to, I'm, I don't know how to traverse this kind of landscape cause I've not, I don't really do it. That's not my job. You know, I'm the musician, you know, I'm, I'm just a um, somebody who's just trying to be creative and stay in that in that that lane. Um, so to try to you know switch gears and figure those type of things out, it's it's not fun. Having sort of danced with the studio label system a little bit, is you know signing record deals something that is like on your periphery, or or you just literally want to create and make it and get it out as easily as possible? Because you know some people like the sole purpose for making that music is to sign the deal whatever oh yeah like, no, that's, that, that's not why you're doing it ever that's never been ever been my reasoning for doing it i just i like you you know just trying to stay creative you know i um when i'm not making music i'm in my garage making some kind of visual art or something and just trying to trying to you know um keep the demons at bay so to speak and so with music for me it's just out of a necessity like my we started playing music years ago me and my brother he's a phenomenal guitar player he's the real guitar player but um our, our, on our father's side of the family, my father was a was a musician, is a musician, but he played everything. Like he could play every instrument, 
and he grew up in San Francisco and he played at the Fillmore Jazz Clubs. So he would sit in with different people, but he had his three brothers. They were all musicians. So they had, they had uh, these, these different bands. One was like an acapella group and then one became a band after they picked up a bunch of instruments. My grandfather was a jazz guitarist and a violinist and my grandmother was a vocalist of their big band. So I have photos of them from the 1940s in the wow. Central Valley of California playing shows. And so, so the, so the music bug is deep, you know, in our genes and, but we didn't grow up with any of that at all. Me or my brother, we didn't learn about it until much later in life till we're well off playing music. So my mom always understood. She was always cool with us making lots of loud music in the garage, you know, the garage was right next to the living room. And so we just banged away, but she was cool with it. Cause she knew she's like, well, his, his whole other side of the family are all musicians and she, you know, grew up with them and uh, would go to shows and everything with them. So she understood. So she was cool that way. How um, do you start making that transition from punk rock, which is your roots, to like jazz fusion, blues, soul, funk, all the other musical ingredients which feed into your, you know, vast catalog of solo stuff? Obviously, it's not an overnight transformation, but no, it's, where, where, where are the records coming from that hit you to that side of music as opposed to just three chord in your face? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I started... punk. I started moving away from punk pretty, pretty early on because I grew up as a bass player. And so I would sit around, you know, listening to Rush and trying to play Getty Lee licks, you know, as a kid. Like, and that's where I was at. I was just trying to learn how to play my instrument. I was, you know, inspired and excited about it and, and obsessed because I would just sit there for six, eight hours just, you know, trying to play. And um, so, you know, realizing that punk rock for me, like my approach to it at that time was kind of limiting. And, and what we were doing was just limited. <clears throat> so like you said, I was going into my metal phase and, you know, all the early, all the early metal stuff, of course, Motorhead. And I was always in the Sabbath and, you know, and then came all these metal bands, Merciful Fate, and Slayer and all this stuff. Um, me and Chuck used to go see Slayer in San Francisco in the early 80s. But uh, I, anyway, bet that, I bet they were crazy shows. Oh, yeah, they were insane. <laughs> but um so so then from there in, in in the 80s and i was listening to a lot of different stuff a lot of the a lot of the new you know new wave like you know uh, jazz joy division and yeah yeah the order and the cure and and you know smiths and whatever all all that stuff i, I was listening to but at the same time when hip-hop started really making its way out here i was really into the, into that um as well and and then are you tracing where the samples are coming from? Yeah, kind of the way. In? Totally. And and listening to hip hop, you know, they they ref they reference so much music, and a lot of times they'll reference, you know, three or four different musicians in one song. You know, the, where mm -hmm. the samples are coming from. They're they're you know getting you know pulling from all these disparate elements to recreate a new context, and it's like making a collage, right? But this is yep. like audio collage that they're making. Like all the good hip hop producers were doing it. And you're like, wow, just bits and pieces from all of these, you know, different records and, and super diverse. So you start. So, again, you start doing your research like, oh, what, what where did that come from? What samples that? Where's that break from? So I always end up just digging, you know, at the flea markets like everybody else and just pulling stuff and find you're like, oh, shit, there's that sample, you know, mind blown. Um, and and that just led me into like jazz, like the soul jazz kind of stuff, you know, that was happening. And that's how I really learned about it. Um, you know, all the, all that stuff from the late sixties and early seventies that would, that had been sampled. Yeah. Of course I knew about James Brown and, and all that stuff, but I didn't know about Freddie Hubbard, you know, 
And I didn't know about Ramsey Lewis and I didn't know about, you know, all of these, you know, um, jazz musicians who turn to funk and soul and usually out of necessity to try to stay relevant. Um, you know, we're doing all these really cool things, but with this much more of a, you know, coming from jazz, a more heady kind of approach, but with this super funky groove happening underneath it. And you're just like, it was just mind, mind blowing, you know, really opening like, oh, wow, this is incredible stuff. Like Grant Green, you know, as you can hear, like, I love his guitar playing. He was one of the guys that got into it. And I also was listening to Santana forever and, you know, all his early stuff, which I dig. Um, so for me, you know, I just started getting into it because of hip hop. And I, and I started making beats in the early 90s, um, around 91, because I got an old Emacs sampler, and a little MMT8, you know, outboard sequencer. And I was making beats. I would sample myself playing bass or a little guitar, and I would sample other elements from records. And I was just creating these sort of, you know, again, like audio collages, these songs and these in these kind of grooves. And I just dug what was happening. But at that time, I, you know, I'm not a vocalist and I was working with a couple of different rappers, but nothing panned out. So I had these tracks and I needed to figure out what to do with them. So I started playing these guitar melodies on top and that became the voice. And that's really how the guitar playing thing happened. It was just out of necessity to create, um, uh, to have a voice and create melody. And you've never felt the urge or the desire to step up and grab the mic and of course become, become the singer of course i mean there's been time you know i'll, I'll do it on, a, on there's a few records where i a couple things here and there vocally but no um i haven't just you know for me the instrumental music is what i mostly listen to and language doesn't get in the way and and i think that's one of the appeals of my music as well not only is it just kind of you know it's pretty benign um and it's but it also doesn't have you're not tethered to a vocalist and you're not tethered to an idea and I think that's what I dig about instrumental music as well. Because once you have vocals, you have somebody else's ideas um, and thoughts, and you, then it anchors you to that, to just that specific moment in their ideas. Whereas my music definitely lets you kind of float out and yeah. think about whatever it is you're going to do. And that's why a lot of creative people love listening to my music while they work. A lot of, a lot of artists hit me all the time, like, Tommy, man, I'm, you know, I just listen to your records all the time when I'm working. And, and it makes sense. Um, so I think that my music definitely, um, transcends a lot of, uh, the bullshit, you know, with, uh, that language can, you know, uh, kind of hamper things and, and sort of get in the way. Yeah. What it does is it kind of predetermines, doesn't it? It forces it in a certain way. Yeah. Whereas if it's just the vibe, then that can really go anywhere. It almost becomes like meditation then, doesn't it? Like it's on the mu your music's on in the background, somebody's painting away or whatever. And the next thing they know, the record's finished and they can't remember what happened over the last hour. Yeah, com completely. And that's exactly my approach to music. I mean, I get, I do the same thing when I'm in the moment, I'm just gone. I'm just gone, you know? And I think that's probably why I play music. <laughs> Sorry. Someone's banging on my door. Man, no worries, man. dude. No, well, listen, I, I can probably, uh, yeah, let you go anyway. I think that that's pretty much all I wanted to cover. The yeah. only thing I was just going to ask towards the end was, are you still skating? Is that still something you like to yeah. keep up and do? Yeah, yeah, when my body permits, because I have my knees are really fucked up um, in my back, but my knees mostly, and some days it just won't let me, won't let me skate. I mean, you know, some days it just hurts to walk. Most days it hurts to walk. I wear knee, like these knee braces every day just to help out with the, 
like compression and, and stabilization and stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I, I still skate. It's hardcore, isn't it? When you think about like the, the ongoing punishment that people in, in, in that athletic lane would have been putting themselves through before there was trainers or, you know, physicians like you guys oh, didn't yeah. have the luxury that all those other sports did. Back yeah, then, yeah. of course, it was, you know, now they do, but then it was like, get out there, compete, repeat. Oh yeah. Deal, yeah, deal yeah. with it later. Yeah. And terrible shoes too. I mean, the, we had the worst shoes. Some of the, you know, first skate shoes were the worst things for you. They ended up with flat feet, you know, fucked up ankles, fucked up knees because of it. They're just, the shoes were horrible. That's why we started riding all the Air Jordans and stuff because, you know, they were, you know, built for basketball, built to withstand that type of punishment. And so you had the high tops, big padding, padded ankles and, and the support and skate shoes didn't have that. So that's why so many of us started wearing those because you just needed it, especially because what we were doing at that time was the jump ramping shit. And you're just flying off this ramp and you're landing the flat, you know, and the impact that you're sustaining is just, I, I, you know, thinking about it now, I just, you know, you feel like, why didn't we have a landing ramp? What is our problem <laughs> to absorb some of that, you know, some of that impact. And it's just, it's like, wow, it's fucking stupid kids just having fun. And, you know, you don't think about the repercussions 20, 30 years from now, you're just in the moment doing it. No. And I guess, you know, punk rock and skateboarding was never a long-term lifelong career option. Was it when it started out, it was a means to an end to pass the time and, express yourself i mean as a sort of you know it might seem a bit cheesy and open-ended but to kind of finish on this point like what would you say skateboarding has afforded you in your life it's afforded me my life it's you know it i mean if i if, if not for skating i don't know what what i would be doing or where i would be i really don't i mean even if i would be alive um it's definitely skateboarding saved me amazing well, listen, dude, I thoroughly enjoyed this and I want to say thank you for taking yeah. the time out to do it. And totally. if uh, if you're back in the UK when that sort of thing's allowed, then maybe we can do a part two in person and, and hopefully I can get to see you play again. Because, I mean, that show that we put on at the Macbeth, there was only about 20 people there because it was this last minute surprise thing. Yeah. And it, it was just such a vibe, like it was a beautiful hot summer's day. And I just remember like being with a couple of my close friends there. It was like, it's a day we still talk about because it was, it was just fucking cool and perfect. And yeah. I it mean, was, it was, I miss days like that. <laughs> yeah, man. I would, I would kill to do that now. Oh my God. If people want to get into your music, where is the best place to find it and buy it online? You got a web store? No, I don't. That's another thing. You know, I, I don't have e-commerce or anything set up for that. Um, I'm just not set up for it, but the best way to really do it is actually you can just, they can reach out to me just on pretty much Instagram is the easiest way. You know, I respond and I check all my DMS and everything. Um, or, uh, you know, or you can email me directly to my, on my, off my website and I answer that stuff and I could try to direct you. Cause there's, there's a company in, in Germany, HHV that's been really helpful of disseminating it all throughout, you know, Europe. Uh, um, and so, yeah, it's, Oh, man, I don't know. It's a hard one. Well, but, we got connected through the website, so I'd suggest if anybody does want to pick up a vinyl, that's the best place. Yeah. Um, who did the artwork for the Perpetual record? Before I let you go, who's who's the artist? Chris Johansson. That's an amazing sleeve. Yeah. I bought that one off you that day. I got it signed and, and I gave it to my friend as a gift. And uh, yeah, that's a great record cover. That is. Yeah, he's great. I don't know if you know who he is, but he was from the San Francisco Bay Area. 
and he he kind of came up with Barry McGee and all those guys. Right. And, uh, and, but his his take on sort of society is so is so interesting, and he's really funny. He's a really funny guy. Like he has his his insight that is really just uncanny. He's great. Tommy, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really good chat. You have a great day. All right. You and uh, till next time, dude. Thanks very right. much, man. Yeah. Take it easy. See, see you again. <laughs>